If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Six Wives are just such a fascinating story. It's like a soap opera, but it's real and it happened. Six is just a mad number of wives. Because it was a really tumultuous time to be a queen. England, everyone knows how Henry behaves with the people who betray him or just the people he thinks betrayed him. You literally couldn't make it up. It's a story of such drama, twists and turns. I think she deserves redemption, really, from um, how history has painted her out to be. She was such a risk that the king had to go to unprecedented lengths to kill her. They are each fascinating, quite apart from the fact that their stories became entwined with the most notorious king in our history. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. When it comes to historical sagas, they don't come much juicier than the marital history of England's most notorious monarch. The story of Henry VIII's wives is one of political crisis and personal tragedy. Sacrifice and survival, sex and death, scandal, love and betrayal. But after centuries of myth have built up around this story, has it clouded our view of the real women involved? 
Hello and welcome to this new History Extra podcast series, Six Wives, where we'll be peeling back those layers of mythmaking to take another look at these six fascinating women who shaped the course of Henry's reign and, in some cases, the history of England. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and to find out more, I sat down with some of the leading historians of the Tudor era, who spent years dissecting this royal drama. Each episode will follow one queen's journey, charting six roller coaster marriages as six very different women negotiated life with one of history's most unpredictable royal husbands. In any post-mortem of a marriage, it's only fair to hear both sides of the events. So joining us to offer up Henry's perspective on things is historian Dr Tracy Borman, the Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. I asked Tracy what makes this story so fascinating. A king who marries six times, uh, you really couldn't make it up at all. And I think that is why we're still talking about Henry VIII, much as he himself would probably like to think it's because you know he set up the Church of England, made himself supreme head, revolutionised government. But actually, no, it's his marital history that we're all still so fascinated by 500 years later. Each episode... Tracy and I will be joined by another historian to give us the inside track on each of the six women that Henry married. This episode, taking us back to the very beginning of this story, is Dr Nicola Clark, a historian specialising in medieval and Tudor women's political roles at the University of Chichester. Nicola is our advocate for the very first woman to wed Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine of Aragon was Henry VIII's first wife and his longest reigning consort. So she is therefore almost half of his entire reign, which I think is easy to forget. Henry and Catherine's marriage lasted almost 24 years. And as we'll find out in this episode, those years witnessed many twists and turns. Triumph, tragedy and ultimately betrayal. But before we delve into all of that, let's just rewind for a moment. Who was this Spanish princess who became England's queen? Catherine is the youngest daughter of Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. So she comes from a super important European royal family. She is the fourth of four daughters and one brother. And she's the youngest daughter. She grows up in Spain, moving around the Spanish monarch's palaces. And she comes over to England not to marry Henry VIII, but to marry his older brother, Prince Arthur. Yep, you heard that right. When Catherine arrived in England as a young bride in 1501, it wasn't to marry Henry, who at this point was a mere spare heir second in the line of succession, but his older brother, Arthur, the 15-year-old Prince of Wales who was set to inherit his father Henry VII's kingdom. This was a huge alliance for England. Henry VII was the first Tudor monarch. He was desperately trying to establish and stabilise this fledgling dynasty. Uh, In 
opposition to various pretenders who were challenging his throne. And so the fact he'd landed this alliance, probably the best one going with the might of Spain, that was, I think, one of his greatest achievements. And it really does lend prestige and legitimacy to this new Tudor dynasty that nobody actually expects to last very long at all. It's easy to forget that when we look at the Tudors. Um, And so really, Catherine has a lot resting on her shoulders. Um, It's going to be this great alliance. But of course, that first marriage is incredibly short-lived because poor old Arthur is already sick at the time of the marriage and he dies just a few months later. So within just a few months, Catherine had gone from the jewel of the European marriage market to a politically inconvenient young widow, isolated from her family and trapped in a precarious situation in a foreign land. And then there's a period of unpleasant limbo for Catherine in which she is a pawn between her father-in-law, King Henry VII of England, and her father, King Ferdinand of Aragon, both of whom are arguing about her dowry and the finances of the marriage. And this leaves Catherine in this very uncomfortable position. What does she do? Go back to Spain? Does she stay in England? And it goes from a very harmonious alliance to lots of bickering. This was most definitely not the glittering future that Catherine must have imagined when she'd set sail for England. For a Spanish infanta to live in what is essentially penury is extraordinary. And this is because the English king says, well, your father didn't finish paying your dowry. Why should I pay for your upkeep in England? Why? What's in it for me? Her father says, but you're in England. You are the English king's daughter-in-law. Of course he should pay for your upkeep. And because they are fighting over this, nobody actually is giving her quite enough money to cover her expenses. Henry VII is paying her an allowance. It becomes £100 per month as of July 1503. And that's a sizable amount for most people, but not if you are a Spanish infanta and a dowager queen of England. She cannot cover her expenses. Her servants aren't being paid, and she's really, really worried about this. She starts writing awful letters back to her father, really sad letters in which she says, what is happening? I'm living in penury. I'd rather die than stay like this. Have you completely forgotten me? Do you not love me at all? What is happening? Tell me what is happening. Stuck in the middle of political wranglings between her father back in Spain and her father-in-law in England, the young Catherine quickly had to work out how to get things done for herself. However, she doesn't know how to do things like keep control of her own household. So her own servants have so much influence over her and it takes her quite some time really to work out how to manage the people around her so that they don't involve her in various plots to do with foreign policy and things like that, which does happen. But it's a it's a really bad time for her. I think during this time she becomes probably... It's a cliche to say she becomes a lot stronger, but I think that's probably what happens. She grows up. She begins to take her own place in the world, manage her own household, her own money, work out what it is that she wants and how to get it without relying on other powerful people around her. But Catherine's wilderness years wouldn't last forever because another royal match was in the pipeline for her. At one point, rumours swirled that the English king, Henry VII, had it in mind to marry his daughter-in-law himself. But this plan turned out to be a non-starter when it was met with horror by the young Catherine's parents. Going back to the drawing board, 
Henry VII turned to another potential match, one that had been hiding in plain sight all along. Catherine's former brother-in-law, the dashing young Prince Henry. And young is the operative word here, because Henry was just 17 at the time that they married in 1509. However, he'd already known his brother's widow, who was six years his senior, for several years by that point. And forget the image that you have of Henry as a bloated, bitter tyrant. At the time of his first marriage, he was a starry young prince with a love of partying and a bucket load of youthful, romantic idealism to boot. It does seem weird, but it actually starts out as a very romantic story, at least in the young Henry's eyes. Catherine gets Henry at his best. He's a very dashing young man, tall, athletic, kind of a true Renaissance prince. He's good at everything, very clever, very sporty. And he fancies himself as a bit of a chivalrous knight. He likes to rescue this damsel in distress who is uh, the widowed Catherine, his widowed sister-in-law. And so I think he quite likes the idea of the marriage. It's not just that he's kind of getting his his brother's cast-offs. And so he likes to think that he's rescuing her. And that's how it starts. As I say, a very good romantic beginning. It might be slightly unusual and they do require a papal dispensation um, because uh, she has been married to his brother Arthur. But then everything is set fair. So this marriage wasn't simply a case of honouring a pre-existing diplomatic alliance. It seems that the match was also founded on real admiration and affection. And I think there's a strong physical attraction between Henry and Catherine. She's about five years older than him. Um, And I think he was quite mesmerised by her when he first met her at his brother's wedding. He escorted her part of the way and uh, really stole the show. But she was this beautiful, blonde-haired princess from, you know, from a foreign land and and very exotic and and appealing. And, And so undoubtedly, it was more than just politics for these two. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
You need indeed. While Henry was seemingly delighted with his new spouse, can the same be said for Catherine? She's known him a long time. I think she likes him as well. At one point during that period of limbo, she complains that despite being betrothed to Prince Henry, the king will not let her see him. So clearly there's a there's a desire there to make connection and build a relationship. I think the fact that she wants to marry him is at least half politics because these are political players. It would be odd if that was not the case. They are not just private individuals. So the minute that Henry VII dies, she is on it, immediately going, right, let's do this. Let's get this done. <laughs> so from the outset, this was a royal match that looked destined for success. Everything was sort of joy, harmony, this Anglo-Spanish alliance, this attractive young couple, and it all looked set fair. I would say the first years of the marriage were actually very happy indeed. Um, Catherine falls pregnant quite quickly. That pregnancy seems to end fairly early miscarriage, but then early in the marriage, just after a couple of years, she gives birth to a son. Following the birth of the king's much-longed-for male heir, Prince Henry, on the 1st of January 1511, the court leapt into action to celebrate the birth of their future monarch. In February, a triumphant tournament was thrown to mark the great joy and comfort the arrival of a son had bestowed upon his parents. But joy soon turned to despair, as by the end of the month, baby Prince Henry had sickened and died. Now, if that boy had survived, everything would have been different. Catherine's position would have been protected. Uh, you can absolutely guarantee there wouldn't have been the other five wives. He survived only a few weeks. But of course, what Catherine had proven is that she could get pregnant very easily. And there was no immediate cause to, to fear, to worry, because infant mortality was high at this time. Um, and so, you know, parents were, I hesitate to say, used to losing children. It was still absolutely devastating. But um, they would have many more children than the average marriage today. So there was no immediate cause for alarm. And the marriage, you know, continued to, to look very rosy, at least from the outside. And Catherine was more than just a successful royal wife in those years. No doubt drawing on her previous experience in the tricky world of international politicking. She quickly transformed herself into a popular and accomplished queen. Initially, they're like a golden couple and they're a really good team. So Catherine has a lot of diplomatic experience. She is the first woman to have been um, official ambassador for her father, Ferdinand of Aragon, in the English court. Her diplomatic experience there in mediating between two big, quite important nations becomes invaluable to Henry as he tries to navigate his way through European politics in these early years. He's only 18 he sort of knows what he's doing, but like anyone else, he's going to have to learn. She probably, arguably, knows a little bit more than he does. So they're a really good team. And she is there whenever he has a big banquet or a big joust or anything like that. She's at his side, as she should be, like the golden princess. But she is also a good queen. She's been raised to the job. And these skills of Catherine's were even more significant, considering the fact that her husband was a young man whose mind wasn't always on politics. 
Well, Henry does come to the throne a pleasure-loving prince and not all that interested in the weighty affairs of state. So he deputises partly to his wife, but also to Cardinal Wolsey, his right-hand man, who he's all too happy to take these weighty state affairs from Henry's shoulders, while Henry literally spends all day, every day hunting, jousting, partying, and his court is magnificent. Um, He creates this dazzling Renaissance court filled with with poets and artists and musicians. And he loves the glamour of kingship, less interested in its practical application. But that's really where Catherine comes in. She indulges him as well. So Henry really likes to dress up. He likes to do slightly ridiculous things. And on one occasion, he dresses up as Robin Hood and all of his uh, courtiers are the merry men and they burst into Catherine's chambers. I think burst should be in quote marks there because really, how do you not hear a horde of young men coming down the corridor? And you can imagine the women like, right, here we go again. All right, let's take it seriously. Pretend we don't know which six foot man the king is. Uh, And he bursts in and they dance and then they unmask and then they dance some more and then they leave. And that's pretty standard for these early years, that kind of fun. Uh, They're a good team. They they like each other's company. And the young party-loving king trusted his wife with some really serious matters of state. So Catherine deputises for Henry. He wants to wage war in the manner of his medieval ancestors. He's particularly interested in waging war against France. So early in his reign, he does just that, leaving Catherine behind as regent, which is an incredibly trustworthy appointment, really, uh, to to have a woman in charge. This is a male-dominated society. And, And Catherine plays an absolute blinder. She does brilliantly as regent of England, waging war against the Scots, arguably securing a much greater victory than her husband is doing back in France, which sort of puts his nose a bit out of joint. But, you know, he's in public very grateful to her. So Catherine is this powerhouse. She's been raised, really, for queenship. And that's in contrast to her husband, Henry, who was just the spare heir. He should never have come to the throne. And um, for 10 or 11 years, uh, he had no expectation of the throne. I think it's worth taking a moment to look at this time that Catherine spent as regent in a bit more depth. How unusual was it for a queen to be left in charge while her husband was away? While in England, that is super unusual. It's not really a thing. In Spain, it's more common. Her mother, Isabella of Castile, rules Castile in her own right. So Catherine may not have thought her own position as regent was all that unusual. I think the Privy Council might have disagreed. Because acting as regent wasn't just a case of having some honorary title bestowed on you. It was a concrete matter of defending the realm a task that required pragmatism and quick decision-making in the face of genuine military threat. While Henry's in France, the Scottish decide now would be a good time to pop across the border and cause some trouble. So they do. But rather than allow the Privy Council to take the lead in sorting out the defence, Catherine takes the lead herself. So she starts writing letters to noblemen, mustering their troops, saying, turn up, fight. She signs warrants for armour and weapons. She uh, takes stock of supplies as well, and then she prepares to journey northwards herself. And she gets as far north as Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, that sort of region, when word comes that uh, the Battle of Flodden has happened, that the Scottish king is dead. And at that point, she writes to Henry VIII 
and says, so by the way, Scottish King's dead. Just, just so you know, like you do, just FYI, no big deal. She says, well, I'm sending you his coat for your banners so the French can see how strong you are. I wanted to send you his body, but the English thought that that was taking things a bit too far. So she can be quite bloodthirsty. You wouldn't want to be on her wrong side. And here we get a glimpse of another more steely side of Catherine. She's many dimensional. So yes, she could be pragmatic and level-headed, but she could also be passionate and incredibly strong-willed. She's also very implacable. If you get on Catherine's wrong side, that's it. Forever, she will not forgive you. Catherine could make some bad decisions like everybody else, but often she made very good ones, actually, in the early years of Henry VIII. Despite Catherine's many diplomatic achievements, there was another key part to being a successful queen in this era, and it was inescapably biological. After seven years of marriage, including at least one stillbirth, one miscarriage, and the infant death of Prince Henry, Catherine still hadn't given her husband a surviving heir. But that all changed in 1516, when Catherine gave birth to a healthy daughter, Mary. It wasn't quite the son that Henry had dreamt of, but it wasn't a bad start. Very easy with hindsight to look back and think, gosh, yes, Mary's birth, huge disappointment to Henry. It all starts to go horribly wrong. It wasn't like that. Even though Henry needed a male heir, um, a healthy daughter was still very much of use, particularly when it came to the international marriage market and the forging of uh, alliances. And Henry doted on his daughter. He was very proud of Mary, showed her off to visiting ambassadors. And Mary was also very, very close to her mother. So I think this strengthened Henry's relationship with Catherine. Catherine had proved she could have a healthy child. And as I say, Mary was really the apple of Henry's eye for most of her childhood until things started to go horribly wrong. So it was a positive development in the marriage. But of course, the expectation on Henry's part is that Mary's birth would be followed up by that of a younger brother. And I think that while Henry probably never saw Mary as a serious contender for the throne, understandably, because in England women didn't rule as regnant queens at this time, Catherine may have had a different view because in Spain they did rule as regnant queens. So I think it's fair that she thought it was worth educating Mary and bringing her up so that she could fulfil that role should it become part of her future. So far, so good. Catherine was excelling in her role as queen and had proven that she could carry a healthy child to term. So how did things begin to go wrong? Well, I think time is not on Henry and Catherine's side. Catherine, as we've mentioned, was five years older than Henry. And um, even though she was only or barely 30 when Mary was born, that's getting towards the end of your childbearing years in these times when life expectancy often didn't extend much beyond your mid-30s if you were a woman. And so I think there were there were fears, and those fears were exacerbated, really, when Henry starts to look elsewhere, or rather perhaps continues to look elsewhere. Indeed, there's plenty of evidence that as King of England, Henry felt no responsibility to abide by the rules of marital fidelity. And this was something that had proven a bone of contention much earlier in the marriage. 
So there is an occasion in about 1510, so less than a year, really, into their reign, when Henry appears to have been pursuing a liaison with one of Catherine's ladies, whose name was Anne Stafford. She's already married, and she's the sister of one of Catherine's favourite ladies-in-waiting, Elizabeth Stafford, and she's also the sister of the Duke of Buckingham, who's like the number one peer of the realm. And Henry uses his own groom of the stool as a go-between to try and arrange a liaison with this lady. The Duke of Buckingham hears about this and says, well, my sister isn't a whore, not even for the king, and he has her husband send her away from court. Henry hears about this and thinks the sister has been meddling, is furious and dismisses her from court. Catherine is then even more furious, and they have what is pretty much a shouting match over this. And the Spanish ambassador is there shaking his head like, you're going to have to learn to take it, love. This is how it's going to be. After that, she does seem to learn just to turn the other cheek, look the other way. Henry usually finds his companions from among her own ladies-in-waiting, which must have created some interesting issues of loyalty there. But she does at least look the other way. But then there is something rather difficult for Catherine um, in the form of an illegitimate son born to her husband in 1519 as a result of his affair with a lady-in-waiting called Bessie Blount, very beautiful lady of the court. And she gives birth to Henry Fitzroy, son of the king, uh, Henry Fitzroy. And, and of course, Henry VIII is delighted about this because, because look, it proves I can have sons. And then, then I think things start to shift a bit. Look, the problem doesn't lie with me, clearly. Publicly acknowledging an illegitimate child who shared his name may not have been the most tactful move from Henry. But the king made no secret of his feelings for his son. The Venetian ambassador reported how the king loved him like his own soul. And in June 1525, Henry even staged a spectacular public ceremony to lavish the six-year-old Fitzroy with titles and offices, all as an openly indignant Catherine watched on. Her own failure to conceive a son laid bare in a very public way. But while Henry's obsession with having a son was becoming ever more obvious, none of his love interests had ever really posed a real threat to Catherine. They remained just mere mistresses, while she was the queen. That was until the emergence at court of one of the most influential figures in English history. A woman who threatened to bring Catherine's marriage crashing down. Anne Boleyn. I think it's easy to um, to fall for the line that it was love at first sight for Henry. Anne Boleyn first appears at court in 1522. Uh, but really, his first recorded interest in her isn't until four years after that. So 1526, when he famously jousts and he kind of wears this heart that says, you know, I dare not declare or declare I dare not. And Catherine's looking on. She knows that this is a not particularly subtle message about the fact that Henry has his eye on somebody else. And she knows perfectly well who it is because it's one of her own ladies-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. And this is now serious. I think I think it's obvious for Catherine fairly early on that Anne Boleyn is a force to be reckoned with and also that time is definitely not on Catherine's side now. 
You know, she she hasn't fallen pregnant for some time. She is getting beyond the ways of women, as it was very delicately put. So Anne Boleyn constitutes a huge threat. Next episode, we'll be focusing entirely in on Anne Boleyn. So we'll go into more detail on her developing relationship with Henry then. But the timing of Anne's rise to prominence at court is crucial in Catherine's story. Remember that Tracy said we can date the first recorded evidence of Henry's interest in Anne to 1526. And by then, the cracks had already begun to show in his marriage with Catherine. The year before there's any clear interest of Henry in Anne, a year before that, he is already publicly casting doubt on the validity of his marriage to Catherine. So I think she's probably already worried about what this might signify. She hasn't been pregnant since, we think, about 1518. It's often hard to specifically chart exactly when she's pregnant and when she's not, because it's not something you wrote down very clearly in sources. Losing a baby, miscarrying, giving birth to a child that didn't survive is not something that was celebrated. It was considered shameful, particularly for Catherine. You know, it's usually the woman's fault or that's how it was perceived. And that can make it quite difficult to know exactly what's going on. But we think her last pregnancy was in 1518. So definitely by the time Anne is on the scene in 1526, Catherine knows she is not going to be pregnant again. And yes, she's worried. And in this context, a marriage to Anne was beginning to look like an ever more appealing prospect. Anne Boleyn is an incredibly alluring woman. She's not conventionally beautiful, but she literally has a je ne sais quoi, thanks to spending most of her youth in France. Um, she's got this charisma, this self-confidence that's irresistible, not just to Henry, but a whole host of men at the English court. And yet, if he had a wife who had given him sons and or there was the prospect that she would still give him sons, that would have drastically reduced Anne Boleyn's appeal in Henry's eyes. So the two do go hand in hand. Yes, he was attracted to Anne Boleyn, but perhaps what he was attracted by most of all was the prospect that she would give him a son because Anne Boleyn came from, as it was put at the time, fertile stock. Her mother had been pregnant 10 times. So that that's a big deal for Henry. Otherwise, I think she'd have just been a passing fancy for him. So how did Henry set the wheels in motion to secure a divorce? Well, there's a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors around dates and intentions versus uh, actual reality. But I think by 1527, Henry has decided that's it. Um, He wants to get out of his marriage to Catherine. He wants to marry Anne Boleyn. In fact, uh, we still have one of his love letters to Anne, which basically says that. It's it's all but an offer of marriage, although he's not in a position to offer that at that time. But he has, in his heart and in his mind, broken with Catherine. But while the idea of getting rid of a wife who'd failed to give you an heir wasn't unprecedented, as Henry was soon to learn, it was not something to be undertaken lightly. It 
is a possibility, but it's complicated because he can't just secure uh, an annulment. Um, and, and there is a, a kind of subtle difference in that Henry's claim is that the marriage was never valid to begin with, hence it being annulled and, and not a divorce. Um, and his argument is based on a text in the Bible, um, the book of Leviticus, which says that um, a man must not marry his brother's wife and they will be childless. They're not childless, but they have a girl and girls don't count. So that's the basis of his argument. It needs the Pope's permission. This is going to be tortuously difficult because the Pope is completely dominated by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who happens to be Catherine of Aragon's nephew. So you can see how this sort of complex web of family loyalties, it complicates the whole business of Henry VIII's great matter, as it's called. So the scene was set for one of the greatest divorce battles in history. But let's just pause for a moment on that argument that Henry was relying on to justify his annulment to the Pope. This idea that his marriage to Catherine was never valid in the first place because she had previously been married to his brother, Arthur, and crucially, that this short marriage had been consummated. With hindsight, this feels rather like a cunning get-out clause, one conjured up by a canny defence barrister, and only deployed by Henry when it was useful to do so. But is that really a fair assessment? What Henry VIII was brilliant at was believing his own publicity. So whether or not he did truly believe his marriage to Catherine of Aragon was unlawful, he came to believe that, and, and it became his driving passion and obsession. What happened on that wedding night between his brother Arthur and Catherine of Aragon? We'll never know. There were conflicting reports at the time. Uh, one of them said, you know, Arthur came out boasting that he'd spent the night in the heat of Spain calling for a drink. Uh, but Catherine herself always said that nothing had happened. Yes, if I had to put my money somewhere, and this is risky... I would say it was not consummated. Tracy's right, we'll never know. How can you know what went on between two individuals in a, in a room behind closed doors? You can't. And nobody at the time knew for certain either. So later on, the English people who had been there at the time and were asked to give witness statements, all that they could say is, well, they went into the room together and we shut the door and Arthur came out in the morning and said it was done. Uh, but the Spanish servants of Catherine of Aragon, particularly her women, they gave evidence that the next morning when they'd spoken together, the women were looking sad and disappointed and saying bad things about Arthur to the effect that nothing had in fact happened. And that's not beyond the bounds. They're both quite young. They've got time or they think that they have time. Added to Henry's desperation to believe any story that might offer him a way out of his marriage were the encouraging voices of those surrounding him. People for whom an end to the marriage would prove politically convenient. Henry has to take responsibility for being the one to drive forward uh, the campaign for an annulment. But he's not without encouragement. This is the time, the 1520s, the rise of the Boleyn family. And I'm not just talking about Anne. They have a whole faction at court and that faction is surrounding Henry, persuading him that his marriage is unlawful, egging him on. Now, I'm not making excuses for Henry. Uh, he has to take his part in all of this. Uh, but 
he came to listen to all of those voices, uh, which were chiming with his own thoughts. And this really did spur him on. And there's a sense of a ticking clock for Henry. Come on, you have to get on with it. You have to secure the Tudor dynasty, get that annulment, marry Anne Boleyn, have a son. And as her marriage began to unravel around her, Catherine found herself in a hostile court with an increasingly distant husband. It's fairly clear that they're no longer sleeping together, but they are still living in the same palace. In any case, the king and the queen had separate chambers, because that's how it worked. So they lived in separate rooms within the same big palace complex. It seems Henry is visiting her a lot less, and she doesn't like that. Anne is removed from Catherine's chambers and given her own And there becomes like a kind of quasi-mini court going on around Anne as well as Catherine. And that must have been very bizarre, particularly if you're a woman at the palace. Who do you go to? Catherine or Anne? That's very weird. So Catherine did absolutely refuse to let go of Henry. She was implacable. It was not going to happen. And that was given material expression by things like she continued to sew his shirts for him. Even quite late on in their marriage, and this is something Anne Boleyn found out and was absolutely in infuriated by. I think Henry probably couldn't quite understand what the problem was. But between women, this was a big deal. And it was Catherine's way of saying, nope, he's still mine. So as far back as 1529, she is responding really quite forcefully to his treatment of her. There's a banquet on St. Andrew's Day in 1529 when she turns to him and tells him that his treatment of her was pretty much the same as the pains of purgatory. She, you know, for any doctor or lawyer that he found to decide the case in his favour, she'd find a thousand to declare their marriage valid. That is her line and she sticks to it. Henry sends courtiers to her on multiple occasions trying to get her to submit. She absolutely refuses. So as Henry and Anne's allies began to close in on Catherine, why could she not see the writing on the wall and agree to an amicable settlement? Catherine has often been described as self-defeatingly obstinate. But there was a lot at stake for her here. By defending this doomed marriage, she was also defending her own virtue and reputation. I think it's almost about status as well. If she's not the king's wife, what is she? It's seen as a kind of failure. She, as a queen consort, is supposed to mediate between her family in Spain and the monarchy in England, if she no longer has the position as queen consort, she's lost her leverage. What's left for her to retire into obscurity? And she's always been deeply religious, deeply pious. She does a lot of religious patronage, gives a lot of money to religious foundations. So yes, I think she is genuinely worried for his immortal soul. With both Henry and Catherine refusing to budge, disputes over the validity of the marriage rumbled on initially tasked with extricating the king from his unwanted union, was his chief minister, Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey, I think, doesn't try all that hard, or at least not as hard as he could, to get this annulment done. Um, Because for Wolsey, he's in a difficult position. He wants to keep in the good graces of the Pope. So he doesn't really want to rock the boat. He thinks Anne Boleyn perhaps might be a passing fancy for the king. And so he spectacularly fails to get Henry's annulment. But really, Catherine doesn't have a high opinion of Wolsey because at least, you know, he does try uh, to get rid of her, just not very effectively. Despite Catherine's dogged resistance, 
Henry and Wolsey steamrolled ahead. In the summer of 1529, a tribunal was set up to establish the legitimacy of the royal marriage. Well, an awful lot had been pinned on this trial. This was the result of long, arduous negotiations between England and Rome. And finally, the Pope sends his representative to hear the court in Blackfriars um, in London in 1529. And so Henry really is expecting this to be it. Great. This is going to be his moment. Finally, this is the biggest progress he's experienced since uh, fixating on the idea of marrying Anne Boleyn. And it's all going to, to happen beautifully. But in arranging this public trial, Henry had underestimated his wife. Catherine was summoned to appear at the tribunal and her sexual activity, or lack thereof, during her marriage to Arthur was raked over in what must have been excruciating detail. Catherine had already told Cardinal Campeggio that the marriage had not been consummated and that she had entered her marriage with Henry as a virgin and an immaculate woman. And in a true tour de force at the tribunal, the Queen flung herself at Henry's feet and delivered an absolute blinder of a speech, beseeching Henry, quote, for all the loves that have been between us, and for the love of God, let me have justice and right. Take of me some pity and compassion. And defending herself as a true, humble and obedient wife. Catherine rather steals the show. She goes against protocol. She actually confronts Henry directly, going on bended knees, pleading with him, you know, what have I done wrong? You tell me what I've done wrong. And of course, Henry can't tell her a thing that she's done wrong because she is flawless as a queen consort. And I think Henry, in his better moments, would have admitted as much that she'd never really disappointed him as queen in anything other than not giving him a son. Well, that court collapses. It achieves absolutely nothing. Henry is furious. He's frustrated. He takes a lot of that out on Catherine. But I think that court and the failure of that court, that sets Henry on the path of a split with Rome. He loses all faith in the papacy, giving him what he wants. So he's just going to bypass the papacy altogether, set up his own church, make his own rules. He's second only to God now. And the failure to secure the king his desired divorce at the tribunal was to prove Wolsey's downfall. After being stripped of most of his offices and his glorious residence at Hampton Court, Wolsey was accused of treason and died in disgrace before he could face the charges. But unluckily for Catherine, Wolsey was later succeeded by someone who would prove a much more ruthless and efficient executor of Henry's will. I think public enemy number one for Catherine has to be Thomas Cromwell. Now, he is the architect of the break with Rome. He is really on the rise uh, from 1529 onwards. So when this is all really kicking off after that failed papal court at Blackfriars, and he makes it his business to give Henry whatever he wants. And what Henry wants more than anything, of course, is the end of his marriage. So Cromwell is gunning for Catherine, and he's a force to be reckoned with. But it's not that one-dimensional. I think Cromwell has respect for, for Catherine. Actually, 
I think he feels quite sorry for her. Uh, he becomes, against all the odds, quite close to her daughter Mary. You, you sense desperation and frustration in Cromwell as he just begs Catherine, look, just give the king what he wants and you're going to do much better if you do that. So it's not just nasty old Cromwell wading in and, and creating untold misery for Catherine. There's a lot more nuance uh, to their relationship than that. But undoubtedly, really, uh, Cromwell, by helping Henry get rid of Catherine, was the architect of her downfall. But even with Cromwell by his side, obtaining the divorce was still no simple matter. First, Henry had to bypass the biggest religious power in Europe. So he has to set himself up as head of a separate Church of England. Now, this chimes with the ideas that are starting to be circulated in, in what becomes known as the Reformation, uh, which questions the position of the papacy. And also the likes of Tyndale put, put forward views that suggest that kings ought to be above everybody else, including the Pope. Uh, they should be answerable only to God. Of course, this is music to Henry's ears. It's Anne Boleyn who shows him books that say just that. And this really makes up Henry's mind. He's not going to waste any more time with the Pope. He's going to direct things himself. Basically, give him his own divorce. It's hard to exaggerate the fallout from Henry's fateful decision to break with Rome. Establishing the Church of England had a tangled and often bloody legacy that's echoed down through centuries of British history. The Reformation is a subject that deserves many books and many podcast series dedicated to it alone. But can it all be laid at the feet of Henry's marital whims? Was this religious watershed entirely a consequence of Henry's desire to end his marriage in the hope of marrying Anne Boleyn and securing an heir? The spark was Henry's need for an annulment. And I don't think we'd have had the Reformation in the same way or certainly not at the same speed if it hadn't been for Henry's desire to end his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. But there was fertile ground for this Reformation. There was a kind of growing belief in these new, fairly radical religious ideas that were circulating in Germany and elsewhere in Europe. So in a sense, Henry was pushing on an open door. But that's not to say there wasn't huge opposition in England and at court to what he was intending to do. After years of legal wranglings, religious debates and political disputes, by early 1533, the writing was on the wall. Anne was pregnant and a secret wedding had taken place. At that point, that's the final nail in the coffin. That's a hurry up and all the marriage because this is going ahead regardless. And don't we all forget that Henry's actually a bigamist for a few months, really, because he marries Anne in January. The annulment isn't formally agreed until May 1533. Yeah. So let's not gloss over that. Much as I'm taking Henry's viewpoint in this podcast, I think we shouldn't forget he's actually married to two women, technically. So where did this leave Catherine? He then banishes her from court and he sends her to a succession of damp castles in the Fenlands that get smaller and less pleasant as time goes on. And at least for the first of these, the move to Somersham, she refuses. She locks herself in her chamber and says, fine, move me by force. It's not happening. They call her Dowager Queen. She refuses to answer to it. Her servants refuse to take a new oath of service to her as Dowager Queen. In 1531, Henry had banished Catherine from the court. 
and in perhaps the most tragic blow of her life. In 1533, he prevented her from seeing her beloved daughter. Catherine would never see Mary again. Yet she never gave up on her claim. She continued to sign her letters to Henry as Catherine the Queen until her death from natural causes at Kimbolton Castle, just three years later in 1536. She was aged just 50. It was a sad end for a once glittering queen. But could Catherine have avoided this years-long bitter struggle and landed a more comfortable deal if she'd seen the reality of the situation and been more willing to bend to Henry's demands? I think she could have done, but I think she would have felt that that was worthless. What was the point? Yes, I'm sure she would have loved to give him a male heir. But the fact that uh, it's God's will, according to her, she thinks it's God's will that this hasn't occurred, it's nothing to do with her, it's not her fault, there is nothing to be done. She is so principled, and I think she's to be admired for that. But a bit of pragmatism wouldn't have gone astray, I think, when she'd finally, or if she had seen the writing on the wall, okay, there's no way back here, let's just give Henry what he wants. But of course, she never did see the writing on the wall. She refused to accept that her marriage was anything other than lawful. And after everything he'd done to free himself of Catherine, rupture his court, break with Rome, and usher in religious revolution, did Henry harbour any feelings of guilt or remorse for how he treated the woman he'd once loved so dearly. If he did, he didn't show it. But then that was typical Henry, really. I think I've come across one instance in his entire life and reign when he expressed regret about getting rid of someone. And that was not a wife, that was Thomas Cromwell. For Catherine, no, she was just disobeying her king. That's how he saw it. She was going against the laws of God, which he himself uh, was responsible for. And um, he felt, in public at least, nothing but frustration and anger towards Catherine at the end. In the centuries since her death, Catherine has often been dismissed as the long-suffering dowdy wife blown out of the water by her irresistible successor, Anne Boleyn. But how should we remember her instead? I think like a lot of historical women, we tend to see her as one-dimensional. She's the wronged wife, she's the dowdy wife, she wouldn't step aside for a younger woman. Um, Or on the other hand, we tend to see her as some kind of girl boss. We now struggle to admire women in history if they're not warriors or inspiring in some sense. And Catherine is inspiring in a lot of ways. She did a lot of quite extraordinary things. But she's also human. There's more to her than just being an amazing queen or just refusing to bow down to Henry's will. I mean, those things were true. But she's also incredibly stubborn. Sometimes she's misguided. Um, She's also loyal. She inspires loyalty in others. So I think we need to see her as a rounded human and a woman in an extraordinary situation who therefore had to do some extraordinary things. I'm often asked which of the six wives was Henry's favourite. I would say it was actually Catherine um, because they did have a happy marriage for, you know, the best part of 20 years. You know, it, it, it went well for them. And she was an ideal wife in Henry's eyes. In fact, he harked back to her in later marriages, as uh, held her up as this beacon of womanhood and being this ideal queen consort. 
But of course, uh, we now remember their marriage for what happened next, for the five that followed. But it all could have been so different. I think Henry and Catherine were actually ideally suited. They were a dream team. Um, Had that young boy lived early in their marriage, everything would have been different. Next episode, we'll be delving into one of the most explosive love affairs in history as we turn our attention to wife number two, Anne Boleyn. Expect sex, scandal, obsession, and ultimately, death. Thanks to my guests for today's episode, Dr. Tracy Borman and Dr. Nicola Clark. Nicola is a senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Chichester. Her research focuses primarily on women's dynastic and political roles across the late medieval and early modern periods. Tracy is a historian, joint chief curator of historic royal palaces, and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. This podcast was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorne. The producer was Ben Hewitt. If you enjoyed this discussion and want to find out even more about Catherine of Aragon, then head over to our website, historyextra.com forward slash six wives to watch a brand new video with Nicola Clark answering key questions about Henry's first wife. That's historyextra.com forward slash six wives. 